On episode 246 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn Mike Digby's top lessons learned from practicing with the best players on the planet. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. If you feel like you watch too many poachable balls whiz by you and you're like, ugh, I should have poached on that one, then you should check out the doubles playbook because inside there are 48 plays from Martina Navratilova and the Bryan brothers that show you how to set up easy put-away volleys and overheads. If you look at other sports, teams run plays. Football teams run plays to score touchdowns, soccer teams run plays to score goals, and basketball teams run plays to score baskets. When it comes to your doubles game, you can run plays to set up easy put-away volleys and overheads. If you go to tennisfalls.com slash doubles playbook, Martina Navratilova will personally show you one of her all-time favorite plays called the Prognosticator so you can see if the doubles playbook is right for you. I've used many of the plays from the doubles playbook in my doubles matches and think you should definitely take a look at it if you want to improve your doubles game. Just go to tennisfalls.com slash doubles playbook to check it out. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S dot com slash doubles playbook to check it out right now. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey there, this is Mirabhan Ranshad, your host. I hope you're having a great day, and I am definitely heavily at work <laughs> these days, especially on Tennis Summit 2022, which starts on April 18th. I'm actually doing a live stream with my good friend Peter Freeman the day before to kick things off. And if you're interested in joining that, then go to TennisFilesSummit.com or check the link in the show notes page. Uh, but today we have a fantastic interview with Mike Digby. Uh, Mike currently coaches at the Soto Tennis Academy in Spain. He was a former U.S. collegiate tennis player who graduated fairly recently, actually, in 2019. And he worked as a full-time hitting partner with top players such as Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, um, Stefano Tsitsipas, Rafael Nadal. Simona Halep, and many, many others, countless others. So it was really cool to talk to Mike about his experiences with both these players and their coaching staffs and you know what he's learned from them, as well as some of the funny experiences, um, both good and bad. <laughs> so I think that'll be interesting for you. Very interesting, in fact. And I had heard of Mike from Actually, a couple of my subscribers to the Tennis Falls newsletter, as well as hearing him on a few podcasts as well, including the Functional Tennis Podcast. So definitely glad that I heard about Mike because it's always really fun for me to hear about people who are playing at the highest level or who have played people who are at that level at some point. So I will get straight to the interview. And this is actually part one of my interview with Mike. So it was a fairly long chat. So we'll have part two next week. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mike Digby. 
Hey, everybody. It's an honor and a pleasure to have on Mike Digby on to the podcast. And I actually got uh, some emails asking me to get Mike on, which was really cool to to learn about, um, you know, his journey. And then I listened to a couple podcasts about his background. And, it, it, you know, I love interviewing players who have played at the elite levels. And obviously, as you heard in the intro, uh, Mike has been playing with you know all the best players in the world. And now he's He's coaching at an elite level as well at a, you know, a pretty young age, I'd say. So, Mike, welcome to the show and thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Yeah, of course. Of course, Mike. I just want to get started by asking you a fun question that I ask most of my guests, which is, um, how did you get your start playing tennis? Oh, yeah, great question. Um, well, I was, I was very young. I think like a lot, of, a lot of players, I was probably four or five. My dad actually played played badminton at quite a high level. So I think, and then my mum played like tennis to a relatively high level, both both in England. So I think naturally, it kind of ran in the family with the whole idea of racket sports and 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 all of that. So I yeah, they took me down to the park just to a tennis court, and and from the word go, I I actually was I was pretty good. <laughs> I, um, I managed to get the ball over the net. So I think at that age, it's 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 an achievement. So. I think from there on in, I, I loved, I just loved every aspect of, of the sport and yeah, kind of, kind of really, really enjoyed it from, from that age as well. Very cool, Mike. And I know this is a tennis podcast, obviously, but I was curious when you said that your dad got to a high level at badminton, like, I, I wonder how does that, like, what's the highest levels of badminton and, you know, what types of tournaments was he playing? So, yeah, I mean, he played, he played to a relatively good level when he was younger, when he was maybe 20, 21. Um, I wouldn't say like an international level, but he played like nationally, um, like mm. within like his university and everything. So he always had, he always had good hand-eye coordination. I think that's the biggest yeah. thing as, as, as any, any, you know, athlete that plays any racket sport, you know, whether it's badminton, tennis. And so, yeah, I think naturally from, from a younger age, I, I kind of picked that up quite quickly. Um, and I played a number of sports really, but it was tennis was the one that I seemed to seem to just, just be better at. And I think when you're at that age, when, when you're good at something, you're going to enjoy it more anyway. So yeah, he, he played to a, to a pretty good level, which allowed me to, to have some good hand-eye coordination. Yeah, no, that, that's awesome. And, and then, uh, you know, it's really important to just to learn for, especially for tennis parents, young kids and everything. Like, how did you, you know, what types of training did you go through, like starting from when you, you know, like, I guess you mentioned at like, uh, was it five or seven that you started playing, you know, a lot. And then um, like, yeah. what, what types of like training environments did you have uh, at, you know, at that age and after? Yeah, I think, I think my, I was very lucky. My, my parents were never pushy. Um, I think they wanted me from the age of five or so all the way through to 11 or 12. I played I played football, I played cricket, I played rugby, I played tennis and just to get a feel for, for, for all sports. And like I said, my parents were both pretty sporty, athletic. So, so they wanted an environment that was fun. Uh, I think that's my, my, the, one of the reasons why I enjoyed, you know, working in the sport is, is it's fun. <laughs> I, I was put in an environment that didn't have much pressure. I just, they just wanted me to play, to enjoy myself. And, and that shouldn't change when, I, when you get to 11 or 12. You should still have all the way through, whether you're a recreational player, all the way through to if you're playing an elite level in, in the professional game. It has to be fun. 
like it has to be fun so yeah for me the the biggest reason that I think I continued playing all, all the way throughout my teenage years and, and still still now I enjoyed it uh, so I was put in the right environment to allow me to you know stay in the sport Mm, I love that, Mike. Uh, super important there. And like, what is it about tennis? What elements or, or characteristics about tennis is it that you really love and enjoy? Because I think sometimes, uh, a lot of times we forget about that and then we get burned out. But we, you know, so, so what is it for you about tennis that you love? I think it's the, I'm a very competitive person, <laughs> like a very competitive person. So I think it's that one-on-one battle that I, I, I love. Like, I always say, you know, whether I was a hitting partner or now I'm coaching, it's like a game of chess. You know, you're always trying to get one move, one move ahead of your opponent. And, and I always loved that element, even if at times when I was younger, I didn't realize I loved that element. I think now, now I'm a little bit older. I just love those battles, you know, being able to try and figure opponents out. I love the athleticism of the sport. There's no hiding, you know, there's no hiding. You've, you've, you either win a match because you know, you've played really well or you've, or you've competed really well or you lose a match because your opponent was better or, or you just didn't, you know, you weren't quite good enough on the day. So, yeah, there's, there's nowhere to hide in tennis. And I think I, I relish that. I love that element. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, for me, it's one of the best sports, sports in the world. And, and maybe I'm being a little bit biased, but I think from a competitive standpoint, it's, yeah, one of the best sports. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Mike. I did a very, very unscientific uh, study in a sense where I emailed like 70 of the top college tennis coaches and wrote an article about it, like uh, asking them, you know, the top character traits of, you know, the best student athlete tennis players and their number mm-hmm. one trait, you know, overall was competitiveness. So uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a huge one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And then um, did you, you know, after age 12 uh, and such, did you go to any sort of you know, academies or anything like that? Or was it just like mainly private training or how was that um, environment for you? Yeah. So, so when I hit about 12, 13, I would say, I think I then, I then realized that I was, I was, you know, I was pretty good. Like I, I could play and, and, and it almost to the point where, where I think I probably had to drop a couple of sports to maybe take tennis a little bit more seriously. So, so I ended up, from about 12 or 13, just playing tennis. Um, and I was part of, near my hometown, they have like some like development centers and performance centers um, within like the LTA kind of system. And they have them scattered around the, around the UK. And I kind of, yeah, was, was part of that for, for a few years. And, and yeah, I would say I was a late developer. I wouldn't say I was one of the best juniors at all, age 12, 13, 14 even. I think I probably started to, develop a little later and, and and yeah when I was maybe 16 17 before I ended up going to college I probably yeah started to get a little bit better um relatively quickly so yeah never really a part of many academies or or anything like that more private training but but uh, yeah we had a we had a good good base near near where I lived which was which helped me out excellent Mike and then in terms of like the you know the progression through the rankings I mean obviously you as we'll talk about you know soon you've been able to uh, practice against so many of the top players in the world. So what, in terms of um, tournaments and rankings and such, like at what point did you reach, you know, a, a high level in, in the rankings and, you know, just talk us through that like, experience for you? Well, I th- I'd honestly say I was a little bit different to most in the sense that I never really had a ranking that was <laughs> much to brag about. 
I wouldn't say my level was anywhere near some of the best juniors in the country, you know, even into 15, 16. I, I, I probably shied away from competition a little bit, which I think I've seen in a lot of junior players now being a young coach myself. So I think that's quite normal. Um, so, so, yeah, I was always, you know, I was one of the best in my like region, but I was never one of the best in, best in the country at all. So I think that's almost in a way what I'm most proud of with what I've been able to achieve as a, as a younger, younger person, hitting partner coach. I think, and it's a good advocate for a lot of people out there that you, you don't have to be this top 10, top five ranked national junior in order to achieve a lot in the sport. I think there's a lot more to achieve than just playing in, in the sport of tennis. So, yeah, I, I would say I started to get better the, the later I played going into, into my college years. Very nice. Very nice. And then talk us through, um, you know, the decision that, you know, on which uh, college to go to and, and, and such and, and, you know, the experience there. Yeah, so I, I pretty much very quickly around the age of 16, 17, knew I wanted to go to college. Um, it was a relatively new thing in the UK. Like, well, I say new thing. It was, it was new for me. Um, not a lot of people that I knew in my area went to college. There was maybe one or two that I knew, but um, I was told that it would be a really good decision for me being a little bit of a late developer, giving me an extra three, four years to, to compete and, and also combine that with getting a degree. So I looked at a lot of Division I schools, and I'd say I got quite a few Division I offers. But I always thought that, look, for me to get matches in, to play, to compete, to, to enjoy my time competing and try and you know, win as many matches as I possibly could, I was always considering Division II as well. And I ended up going to a Division II school, a, a good Division II school. And, you know, it was an amazing four years. Like, it was really, really good for my development as a tennis player. I played, well, hundreds of matches over the, over the four-year singles and doubles combined. So, yeah, and ended up, ended up having, I think, one of the, maybe the third best win ratio or something in, in my team in, in, in history in college for, for the team that I played for. So, it was a gamble between, look, I could play lots of matches, maybe at Division Two level or not as many matches at Division One. So I always wanted to try and yeah, try and play more matches. Uh, and, and so I just thought Division Two was a better option for me at the time. Yeah, that's awesome, Mike. And, uh, you know, we were talking about a uh, Premier League uh, football or, you know, American <laughs> soccer, I guess, uh, or, you know, when you're an American, you say soccer. And it's almost like, I guess, you know, uh, a player in, in the Premier League, you know, playing in the championship so they can, you know, play all the matches. But then, you you know, you see them like play in the FA Cup against a Premier League team and then they, you know, they beat them or, or they, you know, they yeah. play at the high level. Um, so, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Kind of pretty similar there. Cool. And then, you know, uh, what's really interesting is that I really want to get to is just like your journey and how you're able to play with, um, you know, all of the greatest players here, like Federer, Sitsipas, Nadal, Djokovic, Halep, who you've uh, forged in a nice relationship with and, and play, uh, practice with consistently. So um, how did that all come about? <laughs> yeah, so I was I was in my sophomore year in, in college and uh, a couple of years before I'd started to play German league the, in Germany, they have a lot like the Bundesliga. They have lots of divisions in Germany where um, I would go over um, and, and play that. So I started to play a little bit more there. And then 
over the summer, I would always come back into, into Europe and try and compete a little bit um, for three, four months kind of summer break. And I'd finished German League and I'd just got home and I messaged my coach and said, look, can we do, can we do a few sessions? I wouldn't mind practicing a little bit this, more this week because I'm back, you know, back from Germany. And he said, oh, well, actually, look, there's this opportunity that's come up for, to be a hitting partner at Wimbledon. And I said, oh, right, yeah, cool, that'd be amazing. Uh, and he gave me the contact that then, you know, I then, I then went down to the Roehampton, the National Tennis Centre, and, and practised with, with a couple of players so they could kind of gauge my level a little bit. And they liked me, they liked what I saw. And also being a lefty, I think, helped a lot um, with the amount of lefties that are in the draw, especially with, you know, your Nadal's, Kvitovas, those kind of players, you always need a lefty hitting partner around. So, yeah, I then... I then then ended up going to Wimbledon that year and practiced with Djokovic for the majority of the tournament, uh, as well as abundance of other players, Batista Ragu, John Isner, Naomi Osaka, um, and, and, and all these players. And I think that was almost, without me realizing it, halfway through college, my in to then do what I, I did over the, over the you know, following three years or so, and still continue to do now occasionally. So, that's kind of how it all, all started, really. And that's brilliant. And then um, I guess, you know, I've always been curious about like the level required, um, you know, to be a practice partner, because, you know, I've, I've the, the city open is near me pretty close by. And then uh, yeah. I see some of the yeah, some of the practice partners there. And, you know, I, I think I, I've talked to a couple of them. And I mean, some of them said that you could even be like a pretty high level junior as long as you have like your strokes are consistent. But I was curious, you know, from your perspective. What level is needed? Because I'm sure it's even a dream for a lot of people to to be a practice partner at, at a local tournament and hit with the you know the big guns. So, what's the level do you think that that's needed? It's a it's a really difficult question because reality is every player requires something different. So, mm -hmm. so you know what what someone like a Daniel Medvedev wants out of a hitting partner might be different to what Kvitova wants to what Simona Halep wants. So. I think that, look, obviously you have to be playing at a very, very high level to, to, to be able to compete with them and, and practice with them regularly. You know, in, in the scheme of, 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 you know, the tennis players that are out there, you have to be playing to a, a high level. Um, and I think I just, I made the role my own. Uh, and I, that, that sounds a little bit strange, but I, I always knew that I was never one of the best tennis players. I always knew that I was never the highest nationally ranked junior, but I always knew that, I was good enough to compete and practice with these players. And I, I genuinely started it out as, a, as an amazing experience that, that I wanted to, you know, practice because I was still playing myself. So in my mind, when I went to Wimbledon for the first time, it was very much a case of this is great two weeks to practice and have this incredible experience that could open up so many doors in the future. But I never knew how good I, I was in regards to being able to practice with someone like an Ovac. But I think like anything, when you settle, if you're a good player, then your level can shine through if, if you're good enough. And I managed to settle quite quickly. He made it, he made it pretty comfortable for me. And, and I think if, if you're a good, like you say, a good junior, then you know, there's no reason why, why anyone that's got a relatively good level can, can practice with these guys and, and girls. Yeah, that's great stuff, uh, Mike. I've got a lot of follow-ups there. I guess the first one that I can remember is... Um... So your first, uh, you know, your, your, was it your first practice was with, with uh, Novak? Is that what you said? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, it's a funny story there. I, I remember walking in 
and meeting everyone for the first time, everyone behind the practice desk. And they always used to give me like a list of, of the hits that I'd have that day. And I remember <laughs> the first one being, no being Djokovic. <laughs> and, uh, first one. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit surreal. Um, and, and it's funny because everyone thinks that that, oh, that must be the hardest one. And, and for some some people maybe, and there's some players that I actually found a lot harder to practice with, but for lots of different reasons. But <laughs> yeah, but uh, but but I think it's like anything. It's amazing what the power of connection can with with an athlete. Like if you can connect with anyone and build up that relationship, I eventually with quite a few players that I practice with regularly, I didn't view them as this superstar. I viewed them as someone that I just got along with and I'm practicing with. So then it, it almost like, yeah, it, it detaches that emotion of, oh my God, I'm practicing with Djokovic or oh my God, I'm practicing with Federer. It's more so a case of then, oh, you know what, I'm actually just practicing with someone that's very good at tennis and it's their job. So I think that, that settled me quite quickly when I was able to build a relationship with a lot of the players. It's, I settled very quickly. So then actually I ended up improving because I was practicing with them so much. So yeah, it was, it was a surreal first experience. Very cool. Yeah, I've got a, a couple uh, friends who've been on the podcast, uh, Milan Krinitin and then um, Gibran Mohammed, and they both practice with uh, Novak Djokovic as well. And it seemed like he was very friendly. And, you know, they, I remember Gibran was, was like showing him his kids and they were talking about like being a fathers and things like that. So that was super cool. Yeah. Uh, curious, could you take us through like the, the practice, like what types of, um, you know, drills and, and such that you all did during that first practice? Yeah, so well, first practice, I can or any of them if you can remember. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I think you have. I always kind of break it down to two days. You have match day, and then you have the practice ah. day, especially when you're at the Grand Slams. So yeah, yeah. A match day is really basic. Often just half an hour, forty-five minutes, where you just run through everything, just like just like I anyone would do to warm up for a match. You know, no different at all in in any way, shape, or form. They might run like a particular pattern on the court that they're looking to implement in the match. So it might be that someone like a Djokovic knows that he's playing Nadal. So his backhand down the line is going to be in particularly important that day to try and get it onto into Nadal's backhand. So he might just spend a little bit more time spending 10, 15 minutes just practicing the backhand down the line. But but other than that, the majority of the of the prep is done obviously way before the tournament. But in regards to that specific match, the practice day is where they will then spend an hour and a half or so running through certain things that they want to try and implement on the court from a tactical standpoint. So again, if we use the Djokovic Nadal example, the idea of him really practicing transitioning, going hard into the Nadal's forehand to open up his backhand um, would be a pattern that, that I suspect he would use. And we've seen him use, you know, many times when he's played Nadal. And so, so yeah, there's almost two separate days, which, 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 you know, entail completely different practices in a way, but, a lot of generic stuff that, that a lot of players that at any level would be practicing, you know, anywhere in the world. Very cool. Yeah. I, I remember listening yesterday to the control controllables podcast. And then you mentioned that you, um, you know, you learned how to like hang back a bit more and like hit heavier. Cause I guess you like to take balls um, pretty early generally. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was cool to hear about, but I was wondering, I guess, how did your approach to being a practice partner change if at all, like, you know, from the first time, the first experience to later on, did you make any adjustments moving forward? In regards to my game, the way I play, 
Well, it could be anything actually. Either it's either mentally or how you played or anything like that. Um, not not so much. I think kind of along those lines. The one thing that I realized relatively quickly and that I really latched onto was actually learning more from the coaches than than the actual hitting. I think at that at that period, I, I always had aspirations when I started my hitting to play professionally. I always wanted to give it a try and, and kind of just see see how it went. But I think once the hitting started to kind of not take over, but I started to do a lot a lot more of it, and and I had some interest from from lots of players. I was enjoying it so much that that I felt like that I also could implement a lot of the stuff that that the coaches were saying to me into plays that I could coach and, and eventually try and maybe coach at, at that level, which, which is something that I still aspire to do. So I think the biggest thing that with my mindset that, that kind of switched over the years as a hitting partner was I got really almost obsessed in becoming, in becoming a coach. And it was always something that I think I had in the back of my mind, my mind anyway. And when you start to get a little bit more friendly with a lot of the coaches on tour, they're more willing to help you out, give you some advice. And, and I learned so much by just observing what they did with the players that I was hitting with that actually I built up quite a, a nice knowledge base for a younger coach um, at that level. So I was, you know, very, very lucky to be able to spend some time with some, some, some you know, top coaches who, who have coached on tour a lot. So that would be my biggest almost mindset shift from starting out as a hitting partner to now three, four years down the line. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mm. Can you share maybe like the top two or three um, tactical based tips that you've learned either from all the practices or from, you know, from the coaches uh, of those players? I think the one that sticks out for me is, and it's often neglected and, and, and sometimes mis misunderstood is practice your strengths more than you practice your weaknesses. Mm. I think often we, we kind of always look to, and naturally as human beings, we look to the things that we're not so good at. So if, for example, in my game that my forehand is not so good, then oh, I need to work on my forehand every day all the time. Now, yes, obviously you do. There's, there's elements of, of you have to practice your weaknesses. You want to try and get them better. But at the end of the day, Federer isn't going to be standing there and hitting millions of backhands because ultimately he wants to be on his forehand as much as he can. So I think that was something as a, as a young person, let alone a coach, that, that really hit me and, and changed, I guess, my mindset is, just practice your strengths more, just more, just, just implement those strengths as much as you can as, as a player, because that ultimately is what's going to win you matches. So that would probably be my, my big one. Um, and then 
kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, just, just trying to become the best competitor that you can possibly be. I think when you become a, a top 100 player, a top 200 player, everyone can play tennis. Everyone can hit a forehand. Everyone can hit a backhand. Everyone's pretty athletic. Everyone can serve pretty well. Everyone can return pretty well. But the players that are ultra successful are the ones that can compete the best. And I think just reinforcing daily, like strong competitive, uh, having a competitive environment and understanding what a competitor means, even for the top 100 players, that's what wins the matches. Look, I'm incredibly impressed with Nadal's forehand, with Federer's forehand, with Djokovic's returns, but I'm more impressed with their ability to, to do all of that as a competitor under pressure, in ext- under extreme pressure. And, and that's what makes them the, the, the great champions that they are. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Mike. And then in terms of, um, you know, I know you touched upon this a bit, but I guess I'm trying to dig into like commonalities among like the majority of the pros that you practice with, whether that's like, you know, their routines or, or mentally or, you know, strategically, like anything like that, that you can kind of share that, you know, most of them have or all of them. So I think there's two things for me that stand, stand out with all of the players that I've practiced with and, or, or been around. One of them is the amount of off-court work that they do, their preparation. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's more impressive for me, again, than on the court. They're, they're you know, spending 45 minutes to an hour before their match, whether that's doing prehab, whether that's stretching, whether that's rolling out, whether that's having a massage, physio, just preparing the body and also the mind to, to practice and compete. And again, that then doesn't finish once the practice is done. They do the same thing. And again, the post-rehab, everything, everything that, that is entails to being a professional athlete, let alone a professional tennis player. So I think that, yeah, like if my one bit of advice to, to, to players, you know, that are looking, that are aspiring to be professional and is just really buy into all of the off-court work that, that is required because Again, like I reiterate, once you, once you become a certain level, the tennis, yes, as much as that is important to keep improving and, and improve the elements of your game from a tactical and technical standpoint, but the, the day-to-day habits that you set yourself and, and, and all of the recovery that's needed is, is vital. So they're all incredibly, incredibly good at that and, and are so driven and, 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 and value those areas of, of, their, of, you know, of their game so much. And the other word that I use a lot with them all is they're relentless. They're just relentless. They're, whether that's when they're competing, as we all get to see on, on TV, but in their practice, it's just relentless, like just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. And, and the best players, they all do the basics incredibly well, just, just to such a high level. And that might simply be, you know, being able to open up the court with their forehand. It's as simple as that. It's really simple drills around, right, okay, when you get a short ball, transit, go down the line and transition forward. But they do it with such minute detail to the point where the basics are done so, so well. And I think a lot of people think that they've got this, like the coaches sprinkle some magic dust over their head and all of a sudden they're doing these incredible things and people are, oh my God, well, look, the coaches play a part in, in, in helping them improve, but they're all so relentlessly driven that, that, you know, 
they're on their own journey and they're the ones that have, have got to where they are. Love that, Mike. You know, it's funny. I was listening to you uh, in the car yesterday, pretty late at night, actually, after tennis. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when I remember you saying a similar thing about, um, you know, being uh, willing to just do, you know, what works tactically over and over again and having discipline to do that. And I was thinking, you know, it's just it, it really simplifies things. Like I remember playing last night and just over and over, you know, trying to hit as many inside out forehands as possible to the opponent's backhand until I got a short ball and then, you know, going to the other side. And I, I did that over and over again. And I, and I, then I thought and reflected about how important it is to just be, be willing to do that instead of like other fancy things, you know, just doing the basics, right. You know, over and over. So, um, it's uh, really definitely hit home. So, yeah. I, yeah. 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 No, I just, just, I think just touching on that is, is again, it's, I use the analogy like in order to build a house that doesn't fall over, the foundations have to be set first, i.e. the basics. If the basics are done really, really well, you know, i.e. you've got a high first serve percentage, i.e. you're not missing ball three, i.e. your return percentage is high, you're clear on the patterns you're looking to run in a match. If you can do all those things incredibly well, then the more creative aspects of your game are then can just be added as layers on top. And, right. and you can see that with the likes of likes of Djokovic, Nadal and Federer. They, they have the basics both on court and off court nailed on. So then it allows them to be a little bit more creative in, in certain moments. So yeah, never, no, no need to ever overcomplicate things. Just, just get the basics done really, really well. Yeah, definitely. No, that's such a great point. Because yeah, when I was playing, like I, I saw a lot of other players just it's, they seemed like they didn't have any set patterns. They were just like trying different shots all the time. And, and you know, so I think, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, just sticking to your strengths and, you know, weaknesses wise, just, you know, like I was thinking with my own game, like as long as I can have like a, you know, consistent backhand that allows me to stay in the rally until I can, you know, maybe change the pattern up to get it to my forehand again. That's really all I need. So, um, you know, mm -hmm. your, your tip to focus on your strengths more than your weaknesses is also obviously very important there. You know, aside from the, the things that you've learned, I also know that it's super fun for um, the audience to hear about like your experiences as far as like, you know, who was fun, who wasn't. And obviously, as, as you know, I mentioned, I, I heard about, you know, maybe a certain Italian player that was a tough experience for you. But um, I guess... Um, Let's go the other way first and then say, I, I know, I think you mentioned that uh, Novak Djokovic was a great experience, but like, were there any other players specifically that you don't mind naming at least that uh, you really felt like you connected with and that they were really friendly and nice? Yeah. So two spring to mind, mainly because I was probably on court the most with them with one would be Roger Federer. Um, nice. And the other one would be Simona Halep. I, I, and that's purely because, purely because I spent a, a good amount of time with them um, in, certain, in certain periods. I was with Federer for a good amount of time in, in London when the, o, the ATP finals was at the O2 in London. And then I've been with Halep kind of on and off at different events. I've practiced with her at different events um, over a series of, of months or just under a year or so. So... Like I said earlier, I think when you are with someone more often, you just naturally build up a little bit more of a connection. And, and, and yeah, so it's, yeah, those two would, for me, would be, be the two that, that I would say that I've, uh, yeah, been around the most. 
Got it. And then was there anyone else that maybe like, even though you hadn't, you know, you hadn't practiced with them a lot, just like first interaction, like, oh, wow, this person's really funny or they're really friendly and nice or something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot. Look, a lot of them, a lot of them are really nice. I mean, I've That's I've great. also practiced with Medvedev a lot. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, great, great person to be around. I was practiced with him. At Wimbledon again at the ATP Finals, US Open. Um, so, yeah, he's I've been around him a lot. So again, when you keep coming back, it's it's um, you 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 know, you, you recognise each other. You have conversations that aren't tennis related, and, and you can kind of you know just view them more as someone you can have a chat to. I think the one that's just sprung to mind actually that I was with for about a week at Wimbledon was because I think. Maybe it was his first Wimbledon, or definitely one of his first Wimbledon's. He made the fourth round and, and actually ended up playing four lefties in a row. Was <laughs> Ali Asim, Felix oh, Ali Asim. Wow. Cool. And I think being a very similar age to, to Felix at the time, we spent the best part of a week, um, or the m- Monday to Saturday, uh, with, e- with each other, warming up, practicing every day, because he ended up playing obviously four lefties. And he's a great, great guy, like really, really nice, very welcoming, very warm, clearly, yeah, clearly a very, very, very good tennis player and he's got a very bright future. And, um, but yeah, he always said hello. We always used to have some nice conversations on the court, off the court. Um, and yeah, that week that we, that we spent together at Wimbledon, I was hitting with him was yeah, that actually sticks out now. Now I think about it. Yeah, re- really, really genuine person that, uh, that yeah clearly loves the sport. Yeah, I can you know obviously I've never really <laughs> been or close to him or, or around him, but uh, he seems like a really nice uh, guy as well. Um, just watching him live and, and on TV. But can you tell us like any sort of um you know specifics on like interactions, like if there was any funny banter or a funny joke or you know, like somebody played a prank on you or anything like that, like anything that um, you think that you found pretty funny and, and memorable uh, with a player? Um, I, there's obviously certain things that I probably can't repeat. Um, <laughs> yeah. we we'll blank it out. But, no, kidding. Yeah, no. Uh, but I do, I do remember, I'm sure it was 2018 when I was at Wimbledon and it was the World Cup um, mm. and England were playing Sweden. Uh, in the World Cup, can't remember what stage it was. Maybe, oh, was it the quarterfinal? I can't. It's so bad. I'm English and I can't remember. Oh, so bad. But um, and, and yeah, I remember watching that with Kyrgios in the in the players' lounge. And oh wow, and it was just hilarious because he obviously had no idea what was going on, um, and and almost <laughs> trying to tell, trying to tell a few. I was probably I was watching it with a few of like the the. English, there's a few other hitting partners, but then also a couple coaches. Um, and yeah, he was, he was, yeah, as, as good of a guy, Kyrgios is. I, I think he's a really nice guy. I think sometimes he's, he's misunderstood. Yeah, he was trying to tell us about, about how to play football and it didn't go down well. And Aussie telling the English how to play football. So um, yeah, that was, I always, that one does stick out because yeah, he's, he's a real, real character and, and, and good fun to be around. Nice. Very nice. Wow. Yeah. I actually looked it up. So it was um, England, Sweden, uh, quarterfinals. Um, quarterfinals. Wow, Mc- that's it. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe yeah. McGuire scored. And then uh, our, you know, my, our former Hotspur player, Deli Alley scored. Oh, interesting. Ah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I was probably so focused on 
on uh, what was what Kieras was saying that I completely completely forgot that uh, what the scores. But I do remember we won that match. I do. That's what I do remember. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good one for for the English. Um, very cool. And and then um, okay, so let's go the other way in terms of like uh, you know, like maybe your toughest um experience or a couple of them, you know, ones that didn't go well that you're comfortable, you know, mentioning here. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I've been very fortunate that that I've had 95% of the time there's been some amazing experiences. I've played it on some amazing courts in some amazing cities. But the one for me that definitely was was tough, was tough to take. Uh, not from a not from like a playing standpoint, more from the fact where it was was with with Fognini. Um and again, nothing against Fabio Fognini. I think he's an unbelievable tennis player. I think he, you know, he right. puts smiles on so many people's faces when he's on the court. And I, I purposely go out of my way to watch him play. I think he's amazing. But whatever it was on that day, whether it was me just genuinely not being a good enough hitting partner or whether he wasn't in the best of moods, yeah, he, um, he wasn't happy with me. And yeah, very quickly, very quickly uh, got rid of me on, on the practice court. And that was, that was a, there's like four courts at Arangi Park at Wimbledon where that they're raised at the top, where a lot of like the, the seeded players would practice, both men and women. Um, and we were on, I think we were on the third court and it was, there was like Djokovic was practicing maybe and then, and then Federer, then Raonic. And then I was like in between with, with Fognini and, and, and me. And for whatever on that day, I was, and it was strange because I'd been doing a lot of hits and, and I'd been with Novak and all these players. And I was fine going on. And then I stepped on the court and was pretty nervous, like, which, was, which was normal. But then also it wasn't normal because I'd, I'd had a good amount of experience at that time. And yeah, it just didn't start well. And, and, and yeah, one to, one to, it's funny. I find it funny. I'm pretty open and honest with talking about it now, but definitely one that I look back and think, oh, yeah, I've definitely had some better experiences. And, and I guess generally, what was it that, or what is it that makes you nervous? Why? Well, okay, so I know you mentioned like the connection. Um, if you if you know the player and you have a connection, then you're not so nervous. But I mean, besides that, like, what are things that do make you nervous, or is it just like totally random? Yeah, it depends, isn't it? I think every player, every player brings brings things that you're that you know that you're wary of. So, like, if you're practicing with someone like a, like a Halep, I know that that I need to make lots of balls. I know I need to flatten the ball out because uh, you know generally the women play a little bit flatter, um, lower trajectory over the net. But with Fognini, I know that he can be a little bit of a character, which is if he's in a great mood, it's great. But if he's not, it's a little bit more challenging. So maybe I went into it a little bit more apprehensive than than I normally would do, and and. And that brought out a few, yeah, just a few emotions that well, I was nervous and everything. But I think, yeah, you, you're just wary. I think you're wary because it's like, for me, yes, they are, a lot of them are global icons. But I think sometimes what we forget is, is I'm, I'm helping them do their job. So if I'm not doing my job, then it doesn't help them do their job. So then naturally, like anyone in, in any industry, if you've got someone in that you've brought in that you want to help you and they're not, you're obviously not going to be in the best moves or you're going to have, have words and you're going to speak to them. And I think, 
you know, because it's a very emotional sport and it's very competitive and adrenaline runs high, you know, naturally, naturally people are going to get, you know, annoyed with each other and, and not quite like the way you do certain things. So it's pretty, pretty normal in, in the world of sport, I'd say. Yeah, Mike, and I love, loved hearing your philosophy and approach to being a practice partner, which is to just, you know, help the player um, be, succeed. Like, I think you mentioned there was some, maybe a player who was, <laughs> you know, a practice partner who was just trying to like beat the, the, the pro and then the pro was kind of getting like annoyed. It might've been Nadal, actually, I think you, you mentioned. Yeah, but, um, I kind of remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, can you maybe name one more experience? Because I remember you, you mentioned that with Fognini, like you were like shanking, you know, the first few balls and it didn't, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Minutes or something like that. So maybe one other one with like, maybe like a whatever high, highest ranked pro that you can remember where the practice just didn't go well and walk us through like why that was. So I... Again, I, I'm racking my brain here because I'm sure I've had had some, but I'm trying to remember over the over the years. But I've had ones. I remember one with with Sitsipas at the ATP Finals. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say it, it's not that it went, it, not that it went poorly, but I I wasn't playing well. I, that was just, just I didn't start well again. Wasn't playing well, and I could feel that. Moritoglu, who was on the court, could feel that. And so Stefanos could definitely feel it. And I think that he got a little bit frustrated, but then I kind of had a bit of a word with myself and I said, right, okay, Michael, like, you got to step up now. <laughs> you know, you need to step up now. And I think I just snapped myself out of it and then my level increased and, and I managed to turn it around. But I've been lucky, uh, you know, as much as I've had, you know, worked very hard for the experiences that I've, that I've you know, that I've created for myself. I have been lucky in a sense that I think one of my strengths is being able to build connections and relationships. And yeah. I think that all of a sudden, if you can do that over, over the time and as a hidden partner, you just, it eases the pressure off me. And then I think hopefully it allows the player to feel like that, look, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to beat you because in reality, yeah. I'm not going to. So um <laughs> It's, it's, it's that whole idea of, look, I'm here to try and help you out. And, and then that's how I you know, had a few players ask me back, wanting to, wanting to practice. And I, I, I truly believe it's not because I'm an unbelievable tennis player. I just think it, it's like anything. They felt comfortable with me on the court and that then allowed them to feel like that they could practice freely. Nice, nice. And uh, obviously, I mean, part of that is like um, just trying to, figure out what, how you can help them. But is there any other ways that you like make them feel as comfortable as possible? I think again, with the, with the players, I like your Halops and, and, and not so much Federer, but mainly, mainly Halop was being a lefty. We have certain patterns again, that we like to do a lot of general patterns that lefties, you know, play like, they prefer doing certain things on the tennis court. Obviously, the serves coming in a little bit different. So, I would I would never say, but I would always also offer offer my advice as to you know if someone's playing Halep's playing Kvitova, you know, or what what would she do, or what as a lefty, what do you think normally happens? Now, look, these a lot of these players have played all these players before, and they don't they don't need so much advice from the hitting partner unless I was actually their coach, but. But it's sometimes nice to have a little bit of a view from someone that's coming from outside of the team um, a little bit to, to kind of 
you know, zoom out and go, right, okay, this is what I think and, and this is how, you know, I play as a lefty. Um, you'd often try and, and, and help out with that. But again, for me, the biggest thing, keep it fun, keep it lighthearted, you know, try and make them smile. Like, and, and, and they enjoy that. They genuinely, as serious as some of them look on the practice courts, they also just want to keep it nice and relaxed. And um, I think that's really important, especially when you're in, in and around and playing these big events. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Mike Digby. And Mike, thanks for coming on to the show. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And of course, as I mentioned, part two will be coming out next week. Uh, so just click on to the next episode if you're listening to this over one week from when this show right here came out. <laughs> that made sense. I hope it did. But in any case, thank you very much for listening. And uh, you can find all the links that we mentioned today on the show on the show notes page. And if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoy the podcast, and would definitely would appreciate it if you would leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app that you use to listen to the show, Apple Podcasts, their URL is tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts. Well, at least the URL for my show, not their URL, <laughs> um, but it will redirect to their site. I also do want to leave you with a quote, as I often do at the end of the show, and this one is by Wayne Gretzky, a hockey legend, and Wayne said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Really love that one. And lastly, definitely want to have you join in on Tennis Summit 2022, which uh, includes over 40 of the top tennis coaches on the planet who give you on-court lessons, masterclass presentations, and live Q&As over 40 of them, um, with coaches such as Paul Anacone, Rick Macy, Peter Freeman, Will Hamilton, Gigi Fernandez, Dr. Mark Kovacs, Ryan Reedy, and many, many other amazing coaches. And you can get your free ticket to watch all of these sessions for free at TennisFilesSummit.com. And again, check the show notes for that link if you just want to head there and click without having to type anything in your internet browser or whatever you call those <laughs> uh, of choice. Obviously, I know what they're called, but you know, just joking around. I am definitely o overworked right now, um, I think, but you know, it's all in good fun just working on the summit, prepping for it. So I hope to see you there and I'll also see you on next week's episode. So you have a great one. Stay safe, play a lot of tennis and keep improving your tennis game. This is Mirabhan Aranchad signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.